In your bulletin this morning, it said we were going to be studying Genesis chapter 17. In your sermon schedule, it said we're going to be studying Judges chapter 13. We're actually going to study Judges chapter 12. So neither one of those are right. I'm ready for a new year, for a new start, get all these things back in order. Um, Judges chapter 12 this evening. want you to know that there will be no services this week, no midweek service at all. I hope that you enjoy your time with your family and friends and that you use it as an opportunity to share the gospel with those who need to hear it and to to encourage those who are already believers. Our next service will be Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as normal. We'll have all of our normal services next Sunday. And then we'll have uh, no midweek service or no Wednesday service the following week. It'll be on Tuesday, the 31st. And so we'd love for you to come to that. And if you'd like to stay afterwards for time of fellowship here at the church, there's a sign-up sheet in the back, so we'd love uh, for you to let us know that you're coming and, and help by bringing something. Judges chapter 12. So far we've seen four major judges, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, and Jephthah, and we have one major judge left, and his name is Samson. We'll start to learn about him next week when we meet his parents. But this week we want to um, uh, continue to, to look at Jephthah and then three minor judges. So far we've seen four minor judges, Othniel, Shamgar, Tola, and Jair, and we're going to look at three more tonight. Those will be the last of the, the minor judges. And we say minor just because there's not a whole lot of information on these judges. Uh, there, there's not a whole lot of detail about their lives or what they did for the sake of Israel, but we know that they judged Israel that they led Israel for a certain period of years, and uh, and that's about all we know about them. The, ma- the major judges, as we call them, are ones that we have more detail. We kind of g- get behind the scenes. We we find out about some of their thoughts and their uh, important conversations that they have, and so on. That's what we're going to see again tonight with Jephthah as we continue to study about him. A couple things that we need to keep in mind as we look at this passage, and so before we we read it together. I want you to consider, first of all, that this is an honor-shame society. Uh, and and so shaming is about the worst thing you can possibly do to someone. We, we don't live in an honor-shame society. Uh, it would be probably the equivalent of, of China or some of these other um, Far East countries or even Middle East countries that kind of live in this way, that it's a big deal to, to give honor to a person, and it's a big deal when you dishonor a person. And it's hard to recover from that sort of thing. And this is the kind of society that we're going to be reading about tonight, so you need to consider that in order to make a proper interpretation of this text. second thing we need to consider is that Jephthah was a believer. We know that from Hebrews chapter 11, and that he delivered Israel, as we saw in Judges chapter 11. But here in chapter 12, there is no deliverance, I would suggest that there's only vengeance. And so see if you, you uh, agree with me as we read through this passage together. Judges chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. 
When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim, and it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say now Shibboleth. But he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Now Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family. And he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajilon in the land of Zebulun. Now Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite judged Israel after him. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. And then Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Those who lust after self-glory will stop at nothing to magnify themselves. Those who are all about self-glory will stop at nothing to magnify their own name, their own reputation. And I think that's how Jephthah sadly ends his life. He is a man who lusts for self-glory. Notice in verses 1-6 through we see this. Um, we see this tug of war for, over self-glory and it's between Jephthah and the Ephraimites. Now, in order to understand the intensity of this conflict, we need to understand a few things about this time period in, the, in this geography. We need to understand, first of all, that Gilead was east of the Jordan. So if you'd like to, you can turn to your map in the back of your Bible and look to see where Gilead is, it's, it's often called Ramoth or Ramoth Gilead, um, and so it's east of the Jordan. Think of the Transjordian tribes as the, the two and a half tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan. It was a great spot for farming, and uh, and yet they were viewed very much like outsiders from the rest of Israel. They're still part of the nation of Israel, but they were very much viewed like outsiders. Do you remember the episode at the end of Joshua? when all the tribes were settling down. And the tribes east of the Jordans, which would have included a a tribe like this that Jephthah is a part of, these tribes east of the Jordans set up an altar on the east side of the Jordan. And Joshua and the other nine and a half tribes who were on the west side of the Jordan found out about this uh, this altar that had been set up. And they thought that they were making unauthorized worship to a false god. And so Joshua and the nine and a half tribes come across the, the river, at least uh, uh, an army of, of those men come across the river and they say, what are you doing? And you remember the two and a half tribes explain, 
that it was not an altar of worship, but rather it was a memorial altar. It was so that we don't forget what God has done here uh, for this this people, for our people, for for um, for the for giving us this land. And so that we and our descendants, they would say at the end of Joshua, that we don't forget what the Lord has done for us. And so the two and a half tribes, that just gives you an example, that the two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan were very much treated like outsiders. It was hard for them to be a part of the larger tribe of Israel. And if anyone knew what being an outsider was like, it was Jephthah. Personally, because... His father was Gilead from one of the, the eastern tribes and his mother was the prostitute and so he was even disowned by his half-brothers. And he lived in a remote city northeast of Gilead until, I think it was in the city of Tob, until his family realized his military worth. And so as he gets older and starts to get involved in all these military campaigns, they call him back and they say, Jephthah, please come back and help us. Ammon is is oppressing us. Will you deliver us from Ammon? And he says, well, under a few stipulations. You have to make me your leader. And he, in fact, does defeat the Ammonites and he does become their leader, but he probably in many ways still feels like an outsider. So the first thing we need to understand in order to understand that the intensity of this conflict is that Gilead is on the east of the Jordan. The second thing we need to understand is that Ephraim is on the west of the Jordan. Ephraim is also a part of Israel. But Ephraim is on the west of the Jordan. It's part of the nine and a half tribes of Israel. And if you want to go back to your map, you can look at that as well. The Ephraimites were known for being fashionably late to battles. In Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Gideon had defeated the Midianites and put them on the run. He's chasing down the kings of Midian. And do you remember what the Ephraimites did? Turn back to chapter 8 and I'll show you. Chapter 8, verse 1. Gideon has the Midianites on the right, on the run, and this tribe of Israel, Ephraim, says this to Gideon in verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? Does that sound familiar? And they contended with him vigorously, but he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger towards him subsided when he said that. So apparently, they again come late, or this, this is at least the first time, but they come late to the party and expect to enjoy... All of the the spoils of war, they enjoy, they they miss the opportunity to to take part in the action. And yet this that time in 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 Judges chapter eight, they were just contentious with Gideon. But here in Judges chapter twelve, notice the end of verse one. Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. They weren't playing games here. They were not just being contentious. They were being serious. They, they were ready to take some lives because they were so upset for not being called. They are upset with Jephthah for not letting them in 
on the action, and this time death is the penalty that they want to enact. But notice Jephthah's response in verse 2. He says, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. Apparently he had them on speed dial, calls them up, and they don't respond. They're not listening to him. We're not going to help you at this time. Jephthah was was uh, in the process of negotiating, probably when he was in the process of negotiating with the Ammonites, saying, listen, you can't say that this is your land. This is our land. God gave it to us and so on. And apparently during that time, he calls, he calls Ephraim and says, listen, it's time for you to do battle with us. And they're not ready. That, this is what we find out from, from Jephthah here in verse 2. And so here we find out that Jephthah uses his model that he tends to use when he's dealing with conflict and that is first he tries for diplomacy. He does the same thing with these Ephraimites who are frustrated with him. But do you think these glory hogs were in the mood for a reasonable discourse? Look at verse 1 again. It says, Then the men of Ephraim were summoned and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah. So the men of Ephraim basically mobilized an army they're coming over to Jephthah. It's not just they're just sending a messenger. Hey, how come you didn't let us in on the fight? They bring a whole army of people across the Jordan and say, why didn't you include us? They're not here to, to go through an, 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 uh, a, a conversation, are they? Jephthah says in verse 3, when I saw that you wouldn't help, I risked my light, life to defeat the Ammonites. Ephraim was all about self-glory. They wanted to boast about the victory over the Ammonites. They wanted to have a part in the victory so that they could say they, they did something. They wanted to share in the spoils of war. They weren't concerned about justice. They weren't concerned about God's people being, being disgraced and God's name being dishonored. They weren't protect, about protecting the nation of Israel. They were about their own self-glory. And Jephthah says, when you would not respond, I just went ahead and laid down my life to go up against the Ammonites. But you were nowhere to be found. Notice how Jephthah sees the situation in which he was delivered at the end of verse 3. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Speaking of Ammon, the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Listen, God delivered me from Ammon. And I think probably implied in that is, don't you think God's going to deliver me from you? Isn't there a sense in which you should not be fighting with me? I think there's, there's some element of goodness in what Jephthah has to say here, but as we'll see here in just a second, uh, with his ruthlessness in verses 4-6, through six, Jephthah is just as about his own self-glory, just as much about his own self-glory as Ephraim is. Notice in verses 4-6 through six, the ruthlessness of his, his pursuit of self-glory. The ruthlessness of his pursuit of self-glory. In verse 4, Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. Jephthah fights against them. Notice the reason that, that Jephthah gave the command to attack. It's at the end of verse 4. Because they, the Ephraimites, said, You Gileadites are fugitives in the midst of Ephraim, in the midst of Manasseh. You're fugitives. In other words, you don't belong to Israel. 
You're runaways. You, you're half-breeds. You have no part with us. Well, for Jephthah, those are fighting words. And so he was not going to allow those kind of words to, to stand to... to um, to be able to stand up. And so, verse 5, notice what he does. He makes a military move. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. Any idea what a ford is? It's a place where you, where you can only cross... It's a place in the river that can only be crossed by foot. Or it's a place uh, that's shallow enough to be crossed by foot. And so he secures all those areas, apparently, or at least one specific area, where it can only be crossed by foot so that the people wouldn't be able to make it across. The river, the river was just too treacherous in other spots or too deep. And Jephthah and his men guarded that spot with his troops and didn't allow anyone to cross if they were an Ephraimite. Apparently, that's the place where the Ephraimites had come across to, to start this conflict. And now they were planning to head back home when they found out that that uh, Jephthah was not going to back down. Notice what they do in verse 5. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? So, ask a very simple question. In order for you to cross over this little spot that can be crossed by foot, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you an Ephraimite? If he said yes, well, I think the, the obvious response would be that they would kill him. If he said no, then he had to pronounce a word for them. And he had to pronounce a word that was difficult, I would suggest actually impossible for the Ephraimites to pronounce. And it was the word Shibboleth. Apparently there was some subtle difference between the Westerners of Israel would be able to say this word and the way that the Easterners would say this word. There's no significance to the word itself. It's just they can't pronounce those, those specific sounds. And so when they would try to say shibboleth, it would come out as sibboleth because they're from the East. And uh, then they would know that they, in fact, were from Ephraim. I remember hearing about a similar tactic used by American troops. It was either in the Vietnam War or in World War II with Japanese soldiers. I can't remember... Exactly, but the Americans had a narrow passageway that they were guarding, and in order for a soldier to pass, he would have to say the code word, Hallelujah, which for Americans is very easy to say, but for Asians, it's impossible to say because their L's come out like R's. And so the Americans would be able to, to defend that area and be able to tell when an enemy was coming. And this is what Gilead is doing with, with uh, the Ephraimites. I'm guessing that Jephthah didn't quiz each person individually, however, but they probably had a whole group of people standing there ready to cross back over and that the leader speaks on behalf of them because we find out in verse 6, Then they would say to him, Say now Shibboleth, but he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of Jordan, of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. 42,000. Now, just to put that in perspective, how many of you have been to a Tigers baseball game at Comerica Park? Raise your hand. Okay, almost all of us. That's about how many people were killed by Jephthah. The number of people that can fit into that stadium. 42,000 people of Ephraim. 
Now, prior going into the Promised Land, a census was done that we read about in the book of Numbers, and the tribe of Ephraim at that time was 40,500. And and Jephthah at this point kills 42,000. So obviously they've expanded. But I would suggest that this is a large percentage, if if not only a majority of people that he's killed in the tribe of Ephraim over this one little thing. In fact, more men of Ephraim were killed than any other people group in the book of Judges. And it was all at the hand of Jephthah. Now consider what this means. Jephthah is of what nation? He's of Gilead, but but what nation is he a part of? This is not a trick question. Israel. Ephraim is another tribe, and they're part of what nation? Israel. And so Jephthah here is killing his own people. You see how debased the people of Israel have become at this period in the book of Judges. Israel has been so fearful of these nations that are outside of their nation, like Moab, and they have to be fearful of them because they're being oppressed by them at the beginning of the book of Judges, and the Philistines. But then they start to become more fearful because the Canaanites who live among them are starting to oppress them. And then, now, they have to be fearful of their own people because you have some someone as ruthless as Jephthah walking around who will just kill his own over a small argument as to whether they could be a part of the battle or not. In verses 7-15, through 15, we have the death of four judges. First is Jephthah that we have been reading about in the last several weeks. It's interesting to note here that there's no mention of the land resting. You remember the cycle that we've been hearing about over and over again? That there is sin and then oppression and then a cry for help and then deliverance. Well, Jephthah did deliver them in chapter 11, but we don't have any mention of the land resting and that they were uh, enjoying that rest. Usually there's a period of time that the land rests before they fall back into sin again. There's no mention of that. Now that could mean that the people of Israel simply lived in perpetual evil and there's no time for rest, just continually go back into oppression and so on. Or it could be that, that, that the cycle is just assumed, that we should know what the cycle is by now and that's just how it goes. That each successive judge is going to come at the time after the people have called for help. It's not exactly clear. But Jephthah died after only seven years of leading Israel. And I think this is the shorted, shortest period of time of any of the major judges. After him came a man by the name of Ibzan in verses 8-10. through 10. He was of the city of Bethlehem. There are two cities that are called Bethlehem in the area of Israel. One is near Jerusalem where Jesus was born. The other is in the northwest and is just west of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun. Ibzan was probably from there. And the reason I think that is because um, he seems to, to have some uh, relationship with the next man, Elon, who is also a Zebulonite. And uh, so it very well could be that, that he's a Zebulonite, that Ibzan is a Zebulonite. He and, he and Elon, in fact, were buried in the same place. Um, see, in verse 10, Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. And then Elon was buried at 
Aijalon in the land of Zebulun, uh, very near, I should say, the, the very near each other. So it's likely that these two were related. In verse 9, we find out that Ibzan had 30 sons and 30 daughters. And the fact that he had so many children means that he was probably a man of great wealth and position because not just any man could have that many children with one wife. He probably had a harem and that would require a person to have a great position of power. But the author is not bringing that up in order to talk about the problems with polygamy or anything like that. But rather, he's trying to show this man's widespread influence and power probably over the whole land of Israel. And so it talks about here in verse 9 that he allowed his sons to marry outside. In fact, he brought women in out from outside, had them marry these women, and then he allowed his his daughters to go outside to marry men from outside. And probably the outside is not, don't think like foreign nations, but probably outside of their tribe, outside of their clan. And so they married uh, other Israelites. And what that would have meant is that Ibzan was a man of great power because now he has all of these relationships with other men from other tribes. And uh, so I think that's all the author's trying to tell us there in giving us that detail. In verses 11 and 12, we read about Elon, who was of Zebulun. He judged for ten years. And Zebulun was a, a tribe that was very small. Northwest In northwest Israel, is west of the Sea of Galilee. I think probably near this Bethlehem in Zebulun. And he died and was buried in Aijalon in verse 12. And then we have, finally, Abdon in verses 13 through 15. He judged Israel next. And he was from Pirathon. Pirathon is a city that's halfway between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. And it's about halfway up up the, the way between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Um, he was buried in Ephraim, and so he likely was of the tribe of Ephraim. And in verse 14, we find that he has 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Again, I think just showing his power to rule and to be able to be at peace with people. The donkey was uh, an animal that was ridden by rulers during times of peace. The horse was ridden during times of warfare. So I think the donkey is probably symbolic of his ability to, to gain peace for the land. And he judged Israel for eight years. Our main uh, focus this evening, however, is going to be on Jephthah, and that's where our application will also be. And so let me give you three points of application as we consider this passage tonight. Number one. Beware of the glory hog. Beware of the glory hog. Our world is filled with people who are only looking out for themselves. Right? They will do whatever it takes to advance their career and their bank account. Relationships many times don't matter unless it's getting them somewhere. If you've been in a secular workplace, you know about this. People trying to climb the corporate ladder and they will crush you in order to get there. Our world is full of glory hogs. And in their minds, God's Word especially is of no value to them. They're all about getting glory for themselves. And so we need to watch out for people in this world who are seeking glory only for themselves. Number two, beware of the glory hog within you. Beware of the glory hog within you. Is it possible that we have glory hogs in this church right now? Is it possible 
there's a glory hog on this platform. Is it possible that there's a glory hog in your pew? And I'm not talking about the person next to you. Is it possible that even as Christians, we can cloak our desire to be at the center in the robe of self-righteousness? Is it possible that Christians can at times be most concerned about number one? And I know the answer to that is absolutely yes, it is possible because I know the story and you know the story of James and John were believers of Jesus Christ, and yet they said to Jesus, we want us to give you whatever you ask, or whatever we ask of you. And he says, well, that depends. What do you ask of me? And they said, we want to sit at your right hand in the kingdom. When we get to heaven, we want to sit at your right hand. Remember the disciples' response to their asking? They were indignant. What does that tell us about the rest of the disciples? They were jealous. They, they should have asked that question. Why didn't they think of that first? They were concerned primarily about themselves. Now, why would they want to sit at Christ's right hand? Why would James and John, why would the other disciples want to sit at right, God, or Christ's right hand? Was it so that they could be near Jesus and learn from Him and understand more about His mercy for ages to come? It was so that everyone could see what great servants they were. They were the servants of servants. And do we not do the same thing in our church many times? Do we not perform acts of service in order to be recognized? We want a public announcement to be made about what we did. We want people to come up to us and say, thank you so much for serving our church in this way. It's because we live often for the praise of men more than we live for the praise of God. Because in our hearts, we are glory hogs. And when we seek to receive glory for our good works, we effectively steal it from the Almighty God who deserves all the credit. Beware of the glory hog within you. Number three, beware of the leader who is quick to save his own neck at your expense. Beware of the leader who is quick to save his own neck at your expense. Jephthah was supposed to deliver Israel from its enemies so that it would be more unified as a nation, so that it would be more apt to trust God, but instead he created an internal conflict that would threaten Israel's character as a nation and it would harm their unity. That's because Jephthah, towards the end of his life, was only looking out for number one. I mean, how evil does a man like him have to be in order to slaughter his own people in order to save face? Sadly, we are not much different. We are quick to be politically correct with our neighbors and co-workers so that we can have peaceful life among them, these people who are not as close. 
And yet, at the same time, we're quick to judge or to throw people in our church under the bus. To We're slow to forgive people with whom we are joined and covenanted together in a beautiful relationship. How could this happen? How could Jephthah go from a great deliverer to a great slaughterer of his own people? How does this transition take place? How can any great leader go from leading God's people in a good way to great failure? If you've been a Christian a long time, you've seen it happen a dozen times, if not a hundred, that even great leaders can fall and, and fail in great ways, can't they? You know, a person rises to become a great leader and he does great things for God and then in a moment of great weakness he fails and comes stumbling down and many times brings great reproach on the name of Christ. How in the world does this happen? And I would suggest to you that it happens one baby step at a time. No one person in a position of leadership thinks, you know, someday... I hope that I can commit adultery and destroy the ministry that I have. Or, you know, I hope that one day I can embezzle hundreds of thousands of dollars from the church and turn people away from the faith. And I think the same thing is true about King David. I don't think he ever thought, you know, one day I hope to commit adultery with an army wife and kill her husband and lose my son as a result. He never thought that. It started with what? A stray thought, a stray look, a wrong desire, one baby step at a time toward failure. That's how it happens. That's how failure happens. Very slowly. You think somebody came off their pedestal in a hurry? It didn't happen overnight. It happened as they were enjoying some pleasures long time ago that they should not have been enjoying. They were disobeying God. They were ignoring the voice of the Spirit to turn away from that sin. But then it all comes crashing down. And it happens quick. But it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. Friends, tragic sin can happen to any one of us. We don't have to be in a position of leadership in order to fall from great heights. Tragic sin can happen to any one of us if we do not guard our hearts. Even the best of Christians can fall. We know this because we have lots of examples in the Scriptures of great believers, great men and women of the faith who fell. This book of Judges gives us some amazing thoughts and amazing uh, lessons about life. We see a man like Jephthah who quickly can turn to anger and rise to a place where he is all about his own self-glory and quick to do all of this evil when he should have been delivering them. But what we also see in this book is the great mercy of God that that God is far more offended than any of these deliverers are against the sin of the people. 
both the sin of the pagans and the sin of the, the nation. That God is far more offended by their sin than any of these deliverers. Gideon, as we're going to see, Samson, God's far more offended, is He not? Why? Because He is all holy. He doesn't overlook sin like they do. And yet, even though He is far more offended, He doesn't treat people like these deliverers do. He treats them with a lot of compassion. He is very slow to be angry with them. He gives them lots of time to repent. And even when they continue to stray, He continues to pursue them. Aren't you thankful that we have that God who still pursues us in the same way? Let's pray. Father, please guard our hearts. very easy to think about people like Jephthah in our day and to see how they have fallen and think that we are immune from, from making those same kinds of catastrophic failures. Lord, please guard our hearts. Because if we think that we are standing firm, we must be careful that we don't fall. Lord, help us not to be glory hogs. Help us not to steal the glory that belongs only to You. But to deflect all the praise that we get to You. And to continually acknowledge Your worth and Your work in our lives. May You strengthen us in times of, of uh, quietness, that we would reflect carefully on our responsibility to love You and to grow in our relationship with You. Lord, help us never to become stagnant in our relationship with You. Help us never to stop pursuing Jesus Christ. Stop pursuing Noah. Because I, I think that if we stop doing that, we start to coast backwards. So we need Your grace to hold us up to keep pushing us on. Lord, this life is not easy. We are continually tempted by the things of this world, by our own flesh and our own lusts. And it is very easy for us to get drawn away. But we're thankful that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. May You empower Your Spirit to work within us, we pray, to change us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn to